0: This is Exodus 1, 20, 22 through 210. Pharaoh then commanded all his people, you must throw every son born to the Hebrews into the Nile, but let every daughter live. Now a man from the family of Levi married a Levite woman. The woman became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for 3 months. But when she could no longer hide him, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. She placed the child in it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. Then his sister stood at a distance in order to see what would happen to him. Pharaoh's daughter went down to bathe at the Nile while her servant girls walked along the river bank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl and took it, opened it, and saw him, the child. And there he was, a little boy crying. She felt sorry for him and said, This is one of the Hebrew boys. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Should I go and call a Hebrew woman who is going, who is nursing to nurse the boy for you? Go, Pharaoh's daughter told her. So the girl went and called the boy's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child and nurse him for me, and I will pay your wages. So the woman took the boy and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So today we start our VBS week of sermons, our VBS series, and the tagline, Heroes of the Fort, but the tagline running through every week is that God uses ordinary kids in super ways, and today we're in Exodus chapter 1 and 2, and I want you to see three things. Today I want you to see suffering, first of all, I want you to see a sister, and then I want you to see a a savior. And that's the way we'll frame today up. See suffering. See suffering in the text. Immigration is a problem that's nothing new. That's been in the news this last week, right? Um, And way back in Egypt, Pharaoh looked around and he decided, I've got an immigration problem. Uh, And his problem was that Hebrews had come into the land and over the years, They had multiplied so that they were so many that he said, if they ever band together, they will be too mighty for us. That's in verse 9 of chapter 1. It's not in your bulletin. But he says, Uh, I need a plan. And so he comes up with a plan. First, he just says, I'm going to oppress these people. He gives them very hard labor in verse 11. He gives them all the dirty jobs in the land, hoping to keep them down. That didn't work. And so he ratcheted it up a little bit. He said, okay, I'm just going to have to put put full-on slavery on the backs of these people. And so he makes them slaves. And the text says he was ruthless. They were violently treated, the Hebrews were. Uh, They were made to feel that life was bitter. They were made to go out and work in the fields. They were made to work with bricks and make bricks for all the buildings in Egypt. And even that didn't work. It didn't really keep uh, these people down. Every time Pharaoh tries to persecute the Hebrew people, God multiplies them even more. And so Pharaoh doesn't quit. He takes the next step. He says, okay, maybe if I control their population, then maybe, uh, that will make a difference. And so he commanded all of the Hebrew midwives to come. And those are people that, uh, these are the ladies that help with births. And he commanded the the midwives. He said, if there is a male child that is born to a Hebrew, just kill it. And this is, this is what I'm commanding you to do. You don't have any choice in this. Well, they went away from that, uh, Pretty threatened, right? But they realized we can't do that. We believe in God. We're not going to do that. And so uh, they didn't follow orders. And when none of the boys were killed, uh, the Pharaoh wanted some answers. And so they came up with this brilliant excuse. It's again, it's not in your bulletin text, but it's in chapter one. They said, "Well, Pharaoh, um, the reason that all the Hebrew boys are still alive is because, well, to be honest." The Hebrew women just aren't like the Egyptian women. How about a knife in the side right off the bat? Yeah. The Hebrew women are, they're studs. Like, they do CrossFit. They, their kids come out sideways and they don't scream or nothing. Like, so when they, they came up with this brilliant excuse and, and they say they're so vigorous that by the time we get there, the, the kid's already been born. And we, I mean, you know, it's already been taken away. We, they don't need us, basically. And so Pharaoh's plan didn't work. He had to ratchet it up one more time. He said, this time I'm just going to have to go full on genocide. I'm going to have to bypass all the midwives. I'm just going to include everybody in this plan. And so he commanded in verse 22, that is in our scripture, in our, our bulletin text, For all the people everywhere, even the Hebrews, to kill all of the male children of the Hebrews. If if there's a baby boy, throw it into the Nile. That's the public command. That's the law of the land. And he Turns public opinion, all of the Egyptians against the Hebrews, which really wasn't hard. Up in verse twelve, we learn that all the Egyptians dreaded the Hebrews. It means that they feared them, and it means that they were afraid. And what do psychologists tell us? They tell us that hate comes out of what we're afraid of. And so, it wasn't a very hard leap. It wasn't a very long jump to for the Egyptians to say, you know, I'm not sure about these Hebrews. To Oh my goodness, if they have a son, we need to sink the sun in the Nile. And that's Pharaoh's plan. Everyone is in on the genocide. Drown every Hebrew boy, baby in the Nile. And the reason I need you to see this is because this is where God's people are. The question for God's people, for the Hebrews, is not just how do we deal with this, but the question behind the question is how did we get here? I mean, aren't we God's people I mean, if we're outsiders looking in and we read this story, we don't see these people as blessed by God because of the way they're being treated, because of the suffering in their life. And yet the Exodus writer begins the very book by pointing out the genealogy that has led these people to this place. These people are descendants, their sons and daughters of Joseph and his brothers who are The sons of Jacob himself, Israel himself. These are grandchildren, -grandchildren, great-grandchildren, great-great-grandchildren. It means they have the correct family tree. And it means that God has led them to this place by divine command. There hasn't been any disobedience. And yet, they are here and they are enduring terrific suffering. How can that be? If we're God's people, how can we suffer like this. And one of the takeaways that we need to see right off the bat is that this is the way God's people will often have to face life. We will have to endure suffering. Maybe you are right where you're supposed to be. You are being led by Christ. You are following Jesus. You are being obedient. And yet the things in your life seem to be oppressive and cruel and violent. They are not what you have pictured. And at those times, the temptation is this. I must not be doing something right. God must not like me very much. I must need to change some things so that I can have God's blessing. But I want you in those times to remember Exodus chapter 1. That God's people in Exodus 1 and 2 have done exactly what he's asked them to do. They've gone exactly where he wants them to be. And still they are facing hard, unimaginable, unthinkable times. And so just because you're enduring hardship, don't think... That you're doing something wrong. Now, the caveat to that is that sometimes we can absolutely make our own suffering. Can't we? Absolutely. We roll into the store and we buy a 30-pack and the next morning you've only got 12 left and you didn't invite any neighbors to your house. That's on you, man. Okay? You create your own suffering. And sometimes we do that. But that's not what I'm talking about. Sometimes... God has us in Egypt because that's exactly where he wants us. And just because we're facing hard times and just because we're suffering a little bit doesn't mean God isn't working. And we've all been there. We've all been through experiences where we've gotten no explanation. Sometimes that happens. We go through junk. We can't really see What the cause is. We we don't see that we're the cause. We don't really see the reason why or what God is doing or how he could use this thing. And yet, if we're taught anything in the opening lines of Exodus, it is that the people of God will face life this way. We won't know the reasons. We won't know the whys. We won't know the motives, the answers. But that doesn't mean God isn't working. And it's true that here is suffering, right? God's people are suffering, but it's also true that God is moving to bring his salvation to his people. And just like God, his plan is nothing like you would ever expect. So we see suffering, but then we also see a sister, a sister. So the story is this. Right in the middle, this little girl becomes one of the heroes of the story. This, they are dangerous times, right? And a Hebrew couple comes up pregnant. Oh, my goodness. This is a great thing, but it is a really terrible thing because of the time of this happening, right? I mean, if this is a boy, then congratulations, it's a boy, but congratulations, you're going to have to throw it in the Nile. That's the thing. And so in this, this couple has a son. They know his life is in danger, and they, they keep him hidden. They, they manage to keep him quiet and out of sight, but they only are able to succeed for about three months, and then it's just two months. And too much, and if, if you uh, you know if you're a parent and you go back to those days, you know that tiny little thing that can sit in the car seat next to you and not really make a peep. Uh, three months is about right, right? Um, after that, uh, <laughs> they're hard to keep them uh, quiet, hard to keep them down. I mean, and that's what that's what they were running into. And so, the mother says, "I'm going to make a boat." Uh, she makes a basket. She makes it so that it can float. She sets it adrift in the Nile River, and uh, she puts it in the river. And uh, they that way, they can go and be slaves that they're supposed to be. They, they go to their assignments that Pharaoh has given them, so they keep Pharaoh happy. And they charge their preteen daughter to be the guardian, watching over her baby brother while they are away. And the daughter's role is this. It's in verse 4. Uh, we want you to stand at a distance so that you can keep watch over him, so that you know what will be done to him. And so the daughter at this time, his sister, is maybe 10, 11, 12. She's old enough to babysit, right? But she's young enough that uh, hanging around the river all day isn't going to be a suspicious thing. And so um, she's not expected to be anywhere else, and so it works, right? While we're away, you can watch the baby And he's in the Nile River. Hopefully he'll be fine. And the scene quickly becomes in our story. An adventures in babysitting kind of thing. Because women come down to the water to do what you do when you're a woman going to the water. You wash your clothes or you wash yourself or maybe you skip rocks. Whatever you do. I don't know. But the baby is found out. The baby is heard. The basket is seen. And so... One of the women turns out to be one of the daughters of Pharaoh himself. And she charges one of her uh, uh, companions to go and retrieve the baby. And they're all doting over this baby. And she, it's crying. And obviously it's crying because maybe it's hungry. And she feels, the daughter of Pharaoh, feels what all mothers feel. And the sister is standing at a distance, close but not too close. And she's watching. And she realizes something. She realizes this, this woman is actually being compassionate towards my baby brother. You know, I, I may just be a preteen concern, concerned with my, you know, iPhone and apps and playing Candy Crush, but I think I do have some leverage here. And so she plants herself in the middle of these women and she says something brilliant. The women are doing what you do over a baby. They're doting. Oh, it's a baby. Oh, the baby's hungry. Oh, the baby looks like he's a Hebrew baby. And she pops up and she says this. Should I go call a Hebrew woman to come and feed the child for you? Now, that's a brilliant statement. It's clever. And I've always wanted to be that person. I've always wanted to be the person that... Uh, came up with exactly the right words and exactly the right situation just off the top of my head. I am not that person. I am the person who comes up with the right thing to say three days later. Anybody? Yes. Right. Now, some of you are this person. And (laughs) you come up with exactly the right things to say, but uh, sometimes you say the wrong things and you don't think about them. And so I don't know which is better or worse, but this is where she was. She was able to say the right thing. At the right time. And I think it's because she knew a secret that none that I don't know. I, I shouldn't say you don't know. I have a hard time with this. Here's the secret that she knew that I don't know. She listened. She observed. She saw somebody else and she said, If I were in their shoes, what would I need right now? That's what I have a hard time doing. Maybe you do too. But this little girl knew enough to listen, to observe, to put herself into somebody else's shoes. And when she did that, she was able to say, you know what, I have a solution to your problem. You see that the baby's hungry. You want to feed the, hungry, uh, the, the baby because you have compassion in your heart for this baby. And she saw the, the solution and at the very same time, the salvation for her brother. She said, should I go get a Hebrew woman, i.e., my mom unbeknownst to the Pharaoh's daughter, to come and feed the baby. Should I do that? And it's a well-timed solution to somebody else's problem, and she becomes a hero. There's a guy named Chris Pratt. Maybe you know him, um, have seen him in movies. Uh, Help me with the movie again, because it's escaping me. Guardians of the Galaxy, thank you very much. I should have had that written here. I know that, but you know. Uh, so, Chris Pratt is being awarded uh, just this last week by MTV a generational award, okay? And maybe some of you have, have seen this. Uh, um, one thing you need to know is he, he, gets, he gives an acceptance speech, and he just, it's one of these times where he's able to step up and speak to the people that he works with, to speak to his tribe, right? And to say exactly what they need to hear because he has put himself in their shoes a little bit. And so he talks to them in ways that we probably wouldn't talk to each other in church, okay? If you pull it up on YouTube, just fair warning, all right? He's talking to his, his tribe. He's not talking to church people, all right? And yet, in that, he's able to stand up in front of Hollywood's elite and say, You have a soul. Take care of it. He's able to say, There is a God. He is real. And He loves you. And He wants the best for your life. He's able to say, If you will learn to pray, It's one of the best ways to take care of your soul. And He will say, Every one of us is afforded grace. But don't ever trample grace. Because it, it it came at a cost. It cost a man his blood for you to have grace. Man, does that sound like church? This was the MTV Awards this last week. Chris Pratt is doing this. It was a well-timed word for people who needed to hear about God. And that's what we have from a 10, 11... 12-year-old girl in the text. And here's the deal. (laughs) If a 12-year-old girl can pull this off, then you and I can too. We don't need an MTV platform. We just need to listen, observe, put ourselves in the shoes of other people. And I love this whole text because Miriam's part in the play is just one of the bullet points. This sister is just one of the bullet points that Uh, underscore a great truth in the whole chapter. And the truth is this, that salvation comes through the weak and powerless, not through the strong and the powerful. Salvation comes through the weak and powerless, not the strong and the powerful. There are all kinds of heroes that we can point to in this chapter that illustrate that point. The the two midwives that stood up and said, no, we're not going to kill any Hebrew Uh, boys they were heroes the mother of the child who decided to put her child in a basket in the river why in the world do you do that why fashion a basket and put flex seal on the bottom of it so that it floats right (laughs) why why do that well It's because that was the law of the land. Verse 22 said, All people everywhere were commanded, Throw the baby boys into the Nile. What's she doing? She's living up to the law. She's just doing it on her terms. If you want my baby in the Nile, fine. But it's going to be on my terms. And that kind of faith, that kind of, you know what? I'm going to do this and I'm going to put it in God's hands. And he knows what's going to happen. I'm doing all that I can do. And I'm going to leave it up to God. That act lands this mother in Hebrews chapter 11, which a lot of you know is the hall of faith for Christians, right? The hall of faith for God followers. In Hebrews chapter 11, they show up here. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful. They were not afraid of the king's edict. This act, she was a hero And then the other hero in the text is actually Pharaoh's daughter. She's a Gentile, right? She probably has no significant influence or power. She's very wealthy, to be sure. But she's probably just one of about 60 daughters that the Pharaoh would have had at that time. And she is moved to compassion after she finds this baby, She hears the child. She takes it. She has pity on it. She felt sorry for it. She knows that it's a Hebrew child. She figures that out. She knows the law of the land. She knows that her dad has just decreed that if you find a baby like this, you should probably just turn the basket over and walk away. She knows that, and yet she disregards it. She, She doesn't pay attention. She lets the right thing to do govern her actions. And she unknowingly orders the care of the child to its own mother. And so its own mother gets to care for the child three to four years, probably at most, some commentators think, maybe even up to age 12. And then after age 12, she adopts the child. She names him. She offers a dream life in the palace. And do you notice something about all the heroes in this chapter? The midwives are poor and marginalized. There's no future. They are people without families. God rewards them with families. That's a cool thing. The mother is an oppressed slave. She's lower class. She doesn't have any options. The sister is just a babysitter. She's a tweenager. She doesn't really have any power to do much. All she can go is to get other people, and yet that seems to be enough And finally, there is this Gentile daughter of Pharaoh herself. She's excluded from God's people. She's a religious outsider. She's a racial outsider when it comes to the Hebrew people. And yet, she's a hero. And do you notice something about all of these heroes? They are all women. They are all anonymous. They, they belong to a gender that wasn't expected to do much. They are overlooked. Even Pharaoh himself in verse 22 of chapter 1 says, don't worry about the women. Don't worry about the girls. They're of no consequence. They won't matter. There's no need to worry with them. And what does that say to us? It says, it says this. Sometimes we feel overlooked Sometimes we feel like we're outsiders. Sometimes we feel like we are insignificant nobodies. And one of the things that this story tells us is that doesn't matter. If you've been told that by somebody else, it doesn't matter. More likely, you've told yourself that. I am a nobody. And the lesson we get here is it doesn't matter. God's grace goes to anybody who seeks it. And he loves to use people who consider themselves nobodies. He loves to use people who other people look at and say, that's a nobody. And as a result of nobodies, watch what happens. A kid saves a kid who will save all the other kids. That's what happens. Moses is pulled from the water and he's given the name Moses And his name that he's given by Pharaoh's daughter, by the way, means, I will draw out. What does Moses grow up to do? He grows up to draw his people out of slavery, into life, into the promised land. So God uses nobodies that Pharaoh didn't care about. He uses them to thwart Pharaoh's attempt to kill all the Hebrew sons, and it saves the most important Hebrew son of them all. And so you see the suffering, you see a sister, and now you need to see a Savior. A Savior. Moses was a Savior. He would lead his people to the promised land. His name means to draw out, and he will live up to that. He leads God's people to the place that they will be saved, that they will be saved. Free And Moses is a savior, but we know that he's not the savior, right? Long after the exodus, the this, this same Hebrew people, the Israelites, will wait for another savior to be born. And Moses becomes a prototype, a foreshadowing of this other savior that will come. Moses' story lines up with another one, another greater story, where even the same lines pop up. It's amazing. Do you remember the story of Jesus? the Savior. And do you remember that the king decreed that all the male infants should be killed? Do you remember that? And so, like Moses, this Savior of ours, Jesus, was also born under a death sentence. Herod the Great tried to kill all of the baby boys, but God triumphs over evil. And so, just like Moses was saved, Jesus was delivered from death, while all the other sons were crushed by the state. Jesus lives, and Jesus was drawn out and saved, just like Moses, and he was drawn out and saved for a great purpose so that he could draw us out and save us from the spiritual death that we are all a part of. And so Moses liberated his people by risking his life, but Jesus liberated us all by giving his life. Jesus died the death of a nobody on a cross. That's not the way you die if you're somebody. He died the death of a nobody so that I could be the saved somebody, so that you could be the saved somebody. God saves his kid so that his kid could save all the other kids. You and I are children of God, and we are saved. There's a house servant who had two pots, and he would hang these two pots on a pole that he would bear on his shoulders. And every day he would go down to the stream, and he would march back up from the stream with these two pots full of water, and he would deliver water to his master's house. The issue was that one of the pots had a crack in it. And every day he would go down to the stream, he would fill up these two pots, and by the time he got to the master's house, he would only have one and a half pots full of water because one of the pots was cracked. And so he did this for two years. He would go down to the stream, and he would fill them both up, and by the time he got to the house, there would only be one and a half pots of water. The perfect pot, the one without cracks, cracks was really proud of his accomplishments But the other, the poor cracked pot, right, was really ashamed of its own imperfection. It was pretty miserable because it was not able to accomplish all that it was uh, designed to accomplish. And so after these two years of what it perceived to be bitter failure, this cracked pot decided to speak to the servant one day by the stream. And he said, I have to apologize to you. I am ashamed of myself. The servant said, what are you ashamed of? The pot said, for these past two years, all I've been able to do is to deliver only half of what I was created for because of this crack in my side, and it causes water to leak out all the way to your master's house. And because of my flaws, you don't get full value from your work. The servant said, you know what? I I don't want you to worry about that. Here's what I want you to do. On the way back up to the house today, I just want you to take time and notice the flowers along the way. Would you just breathe a little and just just enjoy the flowers? Pot said, well, okay. So they go up the hill, and they get to the master's house, just one and a half pots of water, and he empties the pots. And when they reached that point, the servant turned to the cracked pot, and, she, and he said, did you notice the flowers along the way? Did you take time out? Yeah, I noticed the flowers. Did you also notice... ...that the flowers were only on your side of the path. Did you notice that? No, I, I really didn't. He said, I've known you've had a crack for two years. And I decided to use that to my advantage. And so what I did was I planted seeds along your side of the path. And for two years now, when we get water at the stream... I have been traveling up the hill, and that water that has leaked out of your pot has watered those seeds and caused flowers to grow. And because there are flowers there, I get to go back in the middle of the day and cut flowers and put them on my master's table so that he has flowers to decorate his house. Each of us has flaws, right? But God is behind our flaws, using our flaws to grace God's table. God always loves and uses powerless people, the broken pots of the world. He's writing a story through you right now that you may not be able to see, but it's still happening, and I need you to trust that today. Jesus had to trust that. In his life, he couldn't really see how God was arranging things, but he knew he had a mission and he had to submit in weakness and trust. And that's what we're asked to do today. To come, salvation always comes through weakness. And so we're not here today to say, God, I'm strong, I'm fit, I'm able, I'm yours, please use me. No, no, no that's not how salvation comes. Salvation comes when we say, God, I'm broken. I'm weak. I'm useless on my own. I need your help. Would you give me your grace? That's how salvation comes. And if we will let him, he can write the best story with that kind of weakness and make us into heroes. Father, we thank you that we get this opportunity to turn our lives over to you so that you can do amazing things, things that we could never even imagine, things that Um, we would never be able to write on our own, but when we turn our lives over to you, you are able to do things that are unspeakable. So Father, help us to trust. Help us to trust, especially those of us who are suffering right now. Would you just help us to trust that you are behind the scenes, you are working, even though your name may not be in the text, it's nowhere in there, and yet your fingerprints are everywhere. And may that be true in our lives. May we trust that you are acting. Father, maybe there's somebody here today that has never in weakness admitted, I need Jesus. Would you work in their heart As broken as they are, would you help them to understand that it's it's that very brokenness that can lead to life and a great story, if they will just turn it over to you. Help us to do that today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.